0: Welcome to another episode, episode four of the CBGS podcast brought to you by Aspen Waite. We have a very special episode this week um, to mark the centenary of World War One. Um, this strays from the area of business in, 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 in a way you could say, but the CBGS Complete Business Growth Service, we are all about community and this so this still has relevance because a key area it's all people it's all about people people. all about people and we're
1: dedicating this uh, podcast to the people that served in World War 1 and in fact one of the things uh, I always say to people is a great strength of ours which has been very very notable recently is that uh, we do get in the trench of our clients and we don't run away Mm. so it's actually particularly poignant Mm. that we should remember the war
0: yes and we're going to start this uh, uh, podcast episode as well with a, a Song of the time" by John McCormack. Hope you enjoy Dark and the.
2: Child.
0: What a lovely song. And I'm here today with Paul again. And um Paul, how are you? Uh how how are you this week? How's it been? <laughs> a
1: bit of a blur to be honest you. A bit of a know. blur. You've not been in the office again all week, I should say. Uh Tuesday to Thursday, certainly. Um just like to say about that song. We we played it in the office on um on Monday, which is the only day I've been in the office, yes. actually. And um it's just amazing, um, it's such a, a, a different period. It could almost be a different planet. And uh, But it, the song is actually amazingly evocative and makes you sort of think, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Do you think? Yes, in, yes. A, in a very different way to um, to a song of today. But, um, yes, yeah, so this week um, has been uh, quite a fun week for me. Uh, Paulie's got to play a bit. So, uh, uh, Tuesday night, uh, we hosted um, Cardiff Blues against Uruguay, a rugby match at Cardiff Arms Park. Uh, Uruguay have qualified for the Rugby World Cup next year. Um, uh, I was a bit disappointed in them, to be honest. I was expecting, I expected them to win because Cardiff Blues played their second team, but uh, Cardiff were comfortably the better side and ran out forty five twenty one winners. Listeners, very very interesting match. Um, still complaining to, to, to Darren Talbot, the man of steel, for his incredibly poor humour, uh, gutter humour from the manor still throughout the match uh, and also um, uh, we, I think probably because me alone with my perspiration was making it impossible to look out the window so it was, the weather wasn't too good um, anyway and then um, the next day uh, we, we went to uh, Chepstow Races uh, second, second time we've been to Chepstow Races properly supporting Valindra uh, Charity which is a South Wales charity supporting uh, cancer victims uh, there was quite a poignant talk with a the guy there with testicular cancer, uh, which probably you know, was, was actually you know, always too too much and you know, too close mm-hmm. to home, etc. sort of thing. But uh, um, and you'd be very pleased to know Armstrong that I bought something in the auction. Oh, yes, I bought a, a signed print of the British Lions' 2016 tour team, ah, which I've nice. donated to the Cardiff office for them to put in our office in Cardiff.
2: Excellent. Which I thought
1: was jolly good of me. Um, and other than that, sort of running around all over the place. Uh, saw my chum Gary White, who we were talking about later, with ah, his yes. his own experiences of the war. So um, yes, I think that's about about it for for our week. For our ah, week I see. And Paul is a,
0: an avid history enthusiast and is going to share some information about the war today. Um, we're going to have a little talk to honour honour those fallen and honour honour the people of Great Britain and the the rest of the world who fought in the war Um, so so leading up to that time can you tell us a little bit about
1: uh, what what the world situation looked like it's quite extraordinary really, Um, history is a subject uh, that is uh, quite poorly taught in schools today as geography seems to be as well Uh, uh, I was quite fortunate with my generation and the ones before us that uh, history was uh, quite a big subject really uh and because of my mum in particular uh, I was subject to history from the age of five yeah. um and of course, you know one thing that's quite scary, really, looking back on it is you know I was born only fifteen years after the end of the second world war, mm. so um you know probably people people who were say eighteen at the end of the first world war uh would have been would have been only sixty when I was born
2: mm. which is
1: quite a Amazing, because now you, you look at the the videos and films of uh, of that period, and it's it's just so they're just so far the way that people talk and they dress and everything. Mm. Uh, so um, anyway, the world was very very different. You know, we t- we, t- we tend to look at the world today and assume that's what it was like then. And of course, uh, I suppose the thing that would stand out in in the period leading up to the Great War. Would be um, the various empires that were in control all over the place. So, just very quickly, um, we had the Ottoman Ottoman Empire, which effectively the Turks, if you like, um, had quite a vast empire that was in has been in decline for quite some time. It sort of peaked uh, around the sort of 1500, 1600, uh, where they were in control of the Mediterranean. Uh, And and effectively, as I say, uh, but but they were still, you know, quite a a big deal. So probably controlling two hundred million people, sort of thing, you know, at at the time. Um, Then, of course, we had the British Empire, which was um, the single biggest empire the world had ever seen before and since. Uh, Very interestingly, uh, the British Empire represented twenty three percent of the world's population in nineteen thirteen, and twenty four percent. Of the land area of the world, mm. when you consider what what that would have been if um, the Americans hadn't treacherously fought against us in 1776, mm. then so uh, and of course in those days um, places like Canada and Australia and New Zealand, America were not countries; mm. they were dominions. Dominions. Yeah, and, 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 and something actually I didn't know. Uh, I probably did once, but you know, too mm-hmm. much alcohol. Um, for instance uh newfoundland was a separate dominion to canada
2: mm.
1: it was only apparently sort of much later on that they they got together so so britain had its had its had its empire with all its colonies uh, and effectively the uh the other empire in europe which had been very very dominant for centuries but again was in massive decline was the austro-hungarian empire which of course was centered around austria um, in those days, so the Austrians and Hungarians, for instance, were effectively one race that would have included people like the Czechs, mm. uh, etc. Um, and then, of course, uh, the, the the one huge thing that happened through the 1800s, which probably was the single biggest factor that led to the outbreak of war, was the coming together of what were many, many German states. Mm. So I think um, there were 34 or something, 34 separate uh, provinces in effect such as bavaria saxony and so on and so forth um, now of course if we go back to um so some of you for a free history thing when you do your pub quiz tonight you can thank me mm-hmm. so if we go back to 1815 and the battle of waterloo uh, of course napoleon uh we kicked his ass but at the end and it was a hard fought victory it has to be said so wellington is uh, take, takes all the glory for that victory but actually um probably without the intervention of marshal blucher from prussia uh, we almost certainly wouldn't would not have won so the prussians came into the battle uh, in the dusk uh, and um together uh with with us brits we we, we saw off the, the french and um and i think it's true to say that throughout um the history before that and indeed up to Probably the war itself that Britain and Germany, or Britain and the German states, have never, mm. uh, have never been anything other than on the same side. I, I
0: was going to say that where we see now is such a, a huge conflict past World War One with Germany, World
1: War One and World War Two. Before that, not much. No, no, before that they were our, our allies, mm. um, and, and that's one of the one of the things that's very strange and indeed interesting about the First World War. The First World War is. Is, is 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 you could you could words like intrigue would come to mind intrigue uh plotting uh people uh you know, aiming to, to 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 kick off the top dog off the top mm. seat you know so effectively you know if we, at that time um britain had the biggest navy in the world with mm. over 300 ships uh the germans effectively uh so uh kaiser wilhelm ii who was made the so kaiser means king effectively who, as many of you will know, was first cousin of um, George V, the King of England, and also first cousin of Tsar Nicholas II, mm-hmm. effectively the King of Russia. Mm-hmm. They were all cousins, first cousins, and it's actually staggering. When you see the three of them looking together, they, they, they are like bees on the pod. Yeah, well, In fact, you look a bit like the swamp yeah. to be honest. It's a bit scary. Deary me. Yes, <laughs> um, yes it was very very interesting. We had these three first cousins um you know, in, in, in hugely dominant positions, you know, so between them. They they we could have they could have marched all over the world and done anything they liked, effectively. Um only in eighteen sixty had we last fought Russia, so the Crimean War, those of you who know about the charge of the Light Brigade, for instance, so we that was that was us fighting the Russians. Mm. Again in the Crimea uh, one of the things that's very interesting about the world today is um if you if you go back into history at the the, the parts of the world that have caused problems um, for over hundreds of years—Afghanistan, the Balkans, uh, Crimea—and and, and they are very real threats again and, and issues today. So it's, it's, it's amazing, you know. Very clever lyric by Abba. The history book on the shelf is always repeating itself. I think <laughs> as a, an incredibly brilliant lyric, actually, and uh, <laughs> very true. So, effectively, um, what, what happened is, is Germany became a country. Uh, for the very first time in January 1871 uh, under a guy called Bismarck that many would have heard of there's a famous ship that was called the Bismarck for instance in the Second World War he was a great um, nationalist uh, and and wanted Germany to be the the dominant power in the world really obviously everyone hugely envied our empire Uh, we had colonies literally all over the world and quite an interesting fact Armstrong, did you know that people from five different continents fought for us in the First World war. Five different continents That's, that's mm. quite an amazing statistic uh, Something something like 25 million troops From the British Empire Were engaged in the, the First World War Wow
0: A huge number We were vast and far-reaching <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you are funny Armstrong <laughs> <laughs> Past, it's more, Unlike your brain
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: So lead, lead, Leading into the war the G- Germany were trying to compete with our empire. Correct. And um this this what what was this what was the trigger that sparked the World War?
1: Oh that's very good. The great, uh, Yes so, well put actually. So um what was very interesting as I say, so effectively um there was a very a very big war in eighteen seventy which was called the Franco Prussian War, uh where basically the Prussians humiliated the French, to beat them very easily. Uh and that set the scene obviously for uh, the French and the Germans not getting on uh, It's rather rather a shame. That doesn't still continue today. It has to be said, but as uh, not take my political agenda in today's arena too much. Uh, Macron, who should be ashamed. Ah, oh, sorry, I didn't say that long. Strong Paul. just just on the better topic. Uh, there's a huge amount of controversy in uh, in, in in France because uh, there, there's a guy called Marshal Patan. Um, Mm. who was a great war hero in the First World War. Um, And in fact, he was generally regarded as being hugely instrumental in the Allied victory at Verdun in 1916, which was one of the probably the four biggest battles of the war. Uh, And of course, he went on to become the leader of the Vichy Collaborative Government Mm. and was responsible for sending many tens of thousands of jews to their deaths in the concentration camp Ah. and yesterday macron said publicly that the french would honor him as a war hero which has not gone down very well Mm. certainly with the jewish community as you might expect i can imagine (laughs) yes so you know it's just again it's interesting how um issues of bygone eras uh don't go away or, Mm. or or come back so um the political landscape was very very different so if we got to 1870 we would have had the germans and the britons basically being on the same side um as as many of you will know britain had been fighting france effectively since 1000. uh many many battles over and over again effectively uh the kings of england considered themselves to be the kings of france for many hundreds of years Uh, and of course the Germans although they are neighbours they didn't really see themselves on the same side as the Austro-Hungarians but all that changed under Bismarck's direction and the Germans very aggressively allied themselves with the Austro-Hungarians the Austro-Hungarians had had uh, terrible trouble with the the Serbians Uh, well Yugoslavia you might know that as uh, historically um, for a long time and there were a lot of troubles uh, in the Balkans as as I, as I was saying earlier uh, and that came to a head um, in 1914 uh, when a guy called Princip uh, assassinated Archduke Ferdinand who was the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, this obviously terribly upset the Austrians as you might mm. expect um, and they then made ridiculous demands on the Serbian government they made 10 demands actually uh all all ridiculous ones the serbians gave in to eight of the ten demands uh and obviously basically the austrians were just wanted to go to war uh, so there was nothing the serbians could have done at that point uh the the austrians declared war on serbia and uh germany uh entered the war on the side of the austrians basically Mm. you know to just as to to create an advantage I, i guess uh the russians had signed a uh Collaborative treaty with Serbia. So, Russia uh, entered the war on, on the side of Serbia against Germany and Austria. Uh, that in turn led to a treaty, the French had signed a treaty with Russia. Uh, so, that then led at that point in time. So, we, are, we aren't in the war at this moment. Mm. So, at that point, it's uh, France and Russia and Serbia against the Austro Hungarian Empire um, and the Germans. Very quickly afterwards, the Ottoman Empire joined the German side mm. um, and what was very interesting was um, up, up, up until the uh, the First World War uh, the, the other side if you like was called the Triple Axis it was referred to as the Triple Axis which was uh, Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Italy mm. so Italy were on that side but when it came to the red light the, the, the Italians didn't go to war oh. they decided that sitting at home and eating pasta was a lot better <laughs> for them we so that was probably where they should have stuck, so um they broke the treaty well well't they didn't honor the treaty as they say they should have they should have under the treaty come to war uh, on the side of the germans uh, but they chose to to stay neutral mm-hmm. and then just to, and then one year later, in fact, they joined the war on our side uh, and I think actually it was quite a cynical um piece of politics that the Italians saw um Geographical advantage, because they considered that the Austro-Hungarian Empire to be weak, mm. and they were looking to pillage uh, territories adjacent uh, to Italy from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm. So, how did we get into the war? Is this question, Armstrong. Everyone's asking, "Come on, waity. how did Britain get into the war?" <laughs> well, there's lots of debates about this. Indeed, my wife and I have quite often have discussions about our foreign secretary is a man called Grey, uh, all Grey. I oh, <laughs> no, I'm not sure he was there actually but anyway mm-hmm. um so um yes he's he's either a a, a saint or a sinner depending on your point of view uh, I I personally see him more as a sinner um I mean it could be argued to some extent we even we even were on the wrong side in the war but um uh, that's probably being a bit harsh uh so so actually we only got in the war because um so i say up until the point of of actually the Germans marching so the Germans decided... The first thing they wanted to do was to annihilate France. So they had to get from Germany into France. Mm. Unfortunately for Belgium... Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a bit like Bridgewater block. was before <laughs> the motorways. Mm-hmm. Everyone had to go through Bridgewater to go on holiday. Uh, um, yeah. The Germans' idea of a holiday is obviously to go and kill everyone else. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not allowed to say that, are <gasps> they Um So um, they, they, they basically... Their, their troops landed in Ger- Belgium as, as, as soon as that happened... Um, Britain went to war because Britain ah. had signed a treaty guaranteeing the protection of Belgium, ah. which also happened in the Second World War as well, Armstrong. Mm. So the Belgians actually have a tremendous amount to thank us for. It's one of the things I have I have a lot of trouble with with today's EU debate because I know one you know one's got to say that one's got to stop you know sometime, but we did we've done so much to help other European countries um, fighting injustice and oppression. Not just in the First World War, but particularly in the Second World War, that it does really wonder where 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 the gratitude has gone. So um, anyway, so yeah, Britain entered the war on the side of the French, and uh, as I say, purely to protect Belgium. So it was it wasn't that we were in love with the Serbians. In fact, quite quite the opposite. So this this sort of bizarre war that nobody wanted started, and um, and what was quite ridiculous is genuinely. Uh, the mood of the British population was such that we were invincible, mm. and p- people. Huge genu- we- empire. Well, we, you know, we, we uh, you know, I don't, I don't know when the last time we'd actually a world lost a battle. We, we were, the, we were the world superpower, exactly. And of course, you know, at that time we had um, America and Germany very much jostling with us, wanting to become the dominant power in the world. Um, and genuinely, people in Britain thought the war would be over by Christmas. Mm. And six million men from the
0: UK alone were mobilised in the in the Great War, and seven hundred thousand lost their lives.
1: Although very interestingly, at the start of the war, I think our regular army was only about three hundred thousand.
2: Mm.
1: It's quite interesting, and in fact, the German army was 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 comparatively small. Mm. Uh, the Russians, on the other hand, had a huge army. But um, it's quite interesting, you know. Uh, I know you've been doing a bit of reading as well. Uh, I can't remember that particular battle but there was a a battle early on on the Eastern Front which obviously we didn't get involved in in Britain Uh, I mean just for the listeners' benefit the the British Army mostly fought um, in France and Belgium uh, and some units including my grandfather John Alfred uh, the Lancashire Lancashire Fusiliers 1st Battalion fought at Gallipoli alongside the Australians and and the New Zealanders but um, just to give you a scale of how good the Germans were against, for instance, the Russians, in one particular battle, uh, mm. only 13,000 Germans were killed and 170,000 Russians. Crikey. So it's an amazing mm. uh, superiority. Mm. So the Russians uh, by far lost the most people in the war mm. a couple of million people. And who, were, um, who are our other allies? Uh, in, from, who did Great Britain bring? To, to <laughs> I, th- I think you mean. So, what, what was the package that brought? So, so obviously, inside our empire, so effectively, um, uh, the empire represented. As I said earlier, we had people from five continents. Mm. So, one of the things that people probably today people uh, would would not even think of, uh, but in fact, I think they actually contributed the most soldiers, other than ourselves, was the Indians. Mm.
2: Uh,
1: and of course, this was um, pre-partition. So India was one country. Pakistan and Bangladesh didn't exist. Mm. So I, I think something there was something like two and a half million Indian uh, soldiers came to the aid of of what, what would be regarded as the motherland in those mm. days. We were like uh, the mothership, you know. Um, and I know it was. A, I tried to find it actually, and to my shame, I couldn't find it. But um, the Canadians, so, as I say, so, so Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa were dominions. And uh, the 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 leader of the Canadian government said something like, uh, "Where the mother mother where the motherland calls, the son will go to the mother's <laughs> apron," or something like that. And mm. so, with with no thought, uh, no hesitation, the, the the children of the empire basically heeded came the call to the of the mother and came to us. Wow! Um, and um, one of the things uh, one of the things I learned yesterday was. Uh, the Australians for instance had the highest attrition rate of all, all nations in the war 65% of all Australians that participated died 60% 65% 65% and of course we had the um, the very unfortunate episode in, in in the Dardanelles in Gallipoli where Churchill lost his initial reputation uh, where a, you know audacious manoeuvre unfortunately backfired and a very significant number of Australians and New Zealanders were, were killed mm. Uh What's quite interesting, actually, is, is in the trenches, um, most of the time, life was very monotonous. In fact, mm. people suffered from boredom mm. immensely because there was nothing to do. And only one in ten British soldiers who were actually serving in the trenches actually died. Mm. So it, it's a lot... It's, this is kind of a safe place for, <laughs> for well, us as, it, as, it could, as much as it could be in the war. Yeah, they're very strange. Uh, and I think one of the things that I love about the British is 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 our resilience and our rather strange humour in this, especially in the face of, of adversity uh and if you read some of the jokes at the time you know they're, uh, they're 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 very much you know no one other than the brits could could possibly think you know think it was funny but um you know we we're, we're very good in adverse situations i think uh one of the things that the, the, the brits do very well is they respond well to leadership Mm. Unfortunately, I think one of the problems that, for me, would have made it difficult for me serving in the First World War, is is, is the, the quality of the generals, mm. which which I think was very questionable. Uh, I would, I think, it, it takes a very brave man to run into a hail of uh, machine fire, knowing that uh, almost certainly you're going to die, and the whole mission in itself is probably pretty pointless. Mm. Mm. And um, I did look
0: at a fact from from World War One about the generals, and they were actually banned from going over the top of the trenches
1: because of because they well they would wouldn't they because yeah. i mean you yeah. don't want um you, know, you wouldn't so called you wouldn't want your key people to be mm. exposing themselves to such danger mm. so um yeah i mean it was it was really uh, i think the thing that marks the first world war was that it was totally pointless it was a war that that started um expediently i think you know the the austrians seized on the opportunity they didn't probably they never thought that it would lead to what it did and once it started it was impossible to, to finish and um really against all the odds because if you, if you actually look at the statistics uh our side had comfortably more men fighting than the other side did mm. And, and it went to the wire as you, as you know i was wrong so mm. right, right up into the last minute you know, in the summer of 1918 the Germans did a final offensive which got quite close to victory mm. um, and it was only really at the end that, that we in particular had a succession of victories uh, and, and finally we, uh, on the 11th of November at 11 o'clock on 1918 the war ended 11 o'clock and they, and they kept firing right up until that number. Yeah, that's that's the that's hour up. after ten drew. Yes, yeah. yes, eleven yeah. o'clock. You might have been taught that by your mother at some stage, <laughs> I hope. Yes. Yes. No, yes it's yes. very sad that. Um it's very interesting on Antiques Roadshow last week. That's how sad I am, listeners. <laughs> um Fiona Bruce actually I think they had a uh, a telegram from that was that was sent out on the eleventh of November uh, at about nine thirty, basically saying, um uh, war is ending at eleven. You know, basically telling people. And um, but what was what was staggering, um, in sharp contrast, for instance, of the behaviour of the SS in the Second World War, where they you know they they basically got out of the concentration camps quite early and mm. tried mm. to pretend they didn't exist. Uh, the Germans kept fighting right up until the last second, so they were still sending huge shells out. Literally, at one second to eleven o'clock, uh, and as you well know, a, a poor c- Canadian lad actually died at at eleven o'clock mm. uh, I, I always feel terribly sorry I mean for people to lose their loved ones anyway is is, is bitter, but uh, I think for people to die in the last day or the last weeks of of the war must have been tr- terrible and impossible to cope with
2: mm,
1: for sure
0: and and there were some technological developments. Uh, uh, brought about as a result of World War I. Uh Things like blood Watch banks. The-
2: oh, which very is very
0: interesting. interesting. You uh, can do with some blood, I think. Well, yes, I'm a bit white today. <laughs> the British Army began the routine use of blood transfusion in, treated, in treating wounded soldiers. Entreating. In treating? In yes. treating wounded soldiers, a US Army doctor, Captain Oswald Robertson, established the first blood bank on the Western Front in 1917.
1: Oh, that's very interesting. Very interesting. So, these things happened <laughs> no i mean uh, the the first world war caused a uh, tremendous uh sociological change mm, financially as well so, finan- yes. so what mr armstrong is trying to say is financial and sociological yes. change, because he can't <laughs> say them both together so i i have to do that for him thanks sir thank you so um for instance uh as, as you know we lived in a very uh, sexist world uh you know and still do arguably in some quarters and uh, women were very much, you know, stay-at-home little girls sort of thing. And of course, what happened with the war is that so many men were um, out in the fighting that uh, women, for the first time, uh, had to come in and run factories, mm. munitions factories. Some terrible stories about um, women, women's skin and faces going yellow because mm. of uh, the, the materials they had to touch. Ah, oh, that reminds me of another technical advancement of World War One: really? plastic surgery. Came as a result of World well, War Well, that's because, yeah, um, Facial that's... Facial... Be- In fact, age, um, probably, uh, as you and I have been wittering on for, uh, for ages now, mm-hmm. wh- one of the things that uh, Drew and I thought we'd like to do today is uh, we thought it'd be nice to, to talk about our own, uh, our own families and people close to us, what happened to them. So we're going to kick off with my family. Um, and uh, quite interesting, actually, on the subject of plastic surgery. So... Uh, Plastic surgery, um, in fact, there's, there's, quite, a, there's a quite a famous uh, British surgeon who, who got involved in this. But for the first time, uh, because of the, the strength of of the uh, munitions that were being used, uh, the Germans had some enormous shells. In fact, um, there's a fact. In, in one occasion, uh, the noise of the battle was so great it could be heard in the House of Commons. Wow. They actually heard a bump. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's how can you imagine that how it's just it's terrifying to be honest with you mm. so um, what happened as well is of course the Germans used gas uh, for the first time which was a terrible thing to do mm. so they actually used um, and of course we were, we were retaliated so we were you know I'm not saying that that makes us worse or better but um, so it wasn't just one way street and in fact I remember as a little boy uh, my grand and granddad still had their gas masks oh wow which I used to find quite yeah. amusing when I was a wee one um so um yeah so I suppose i also in, in order of um of of closeness to me um my granddad my dad my dad john donald Waite his father was was uh, imaginatively called John alfred Waite mm-hmm. uh, John alfred was a, a sergeant major in the Lancashire Fusiliers mm-hmm. uh, very proudly in my dad 's house uh, we have his uh, World War one uh, scroll up on the wall um he was the son of uh, the first Waite that went to the Isle of Man it was also called John Waite and uh, he was a very brave man I think the sergeant majors are arguably the the finest soldiers in the army Um, have tremendous responsibility and uh, Grandad who I never met one of the greatest regrets because I'm sure he was a great man Uh, he died before I was born so I never got to meet him um, he he was w- widely decorated in the First World War and um, served with great distinction and was wounded to a point where, although he didn't die, uh, it shortened his life, so he, mm. he died prematurely. And he was a very well-known dentist, so uh, uh, I'm not sure what, what what you could say about me extraction. I, I extract profits and he didn't <laughs> take teeth. Uh, the other two people I particularly wanted to talk about today... Uh, that I've been doing a lot of reading about um are my great uncles, uh Reginald James and Wallace Evelyn. Uh I was very, very close to my maternal grandparents um when I was a when I was a little boy, in fact all through my life, uh Cyril and Olive Scott who lived in Stagersee where I was christened. And um if you look on the World War One memorial there, I think there's seven seventeen people from the village died in the first world war and unfortunately two of them were scots uh being wallace and reginald a uh, very interesting story actually which i, I feel um is funny going back about the history book on the shelf thing again uh reginald for instance um was quite old so he was killed in 1916 at the age of 39 mm-hmm. so he was quite an old soldier mm-hmm. um i don't know his whole story but what i do know is that he he ended up um living in abadair uh, with a family called the Joneses that was headed by a guy called Morgan Jones, uh, who was a coal hewer. And prior to the war that's that's what um that's what Reginald did as well. And um Reginald married uh, uh Morgan's daughter, a lady called Rose Anne. And um and so to some extent it's interesting because um so South Wales is obviously a big part of my life and um, and it's 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 obviously a, a sort of a, a voyage or a journey that uh very close ancestor of mine also took part in and unfortunately um despite showing amazing bravery uh taking charge of uh, his section of guns um he was he was gassed by the germans but despite that uh refused to to go away from his guns uh and and secured them uh, but died a day later uh, from from the effects of gas uh, and is and is buried in a cemetery in France. His younger brother um, Wallace Evelyn, uh, who who was in a completely different regiment, the uh, Pioneer Pioneer Corps, um, survived right through until 1918. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how how he met his end, but it was during the last few months of the war. Uh, and he is also he is also buried in in France. So. Uh, have two great uncles uh, and eventually my my, my grandfather so that 's uh, my own my own personal story and I think you have um, some stories from some of our chums
0: yes paul I do I have some stories from Aspen employees who are sharing a little bit of information of their family history throughout World war one um, so the to, to, to read the full articles of these stories, please visit our website um, on the podcast page. We're going to put a link up to the article that gives full rundowns of these stories. But um, yes, uh, so I'm going to start with Gary White, FCCA, F- F- director of Aspen White White, our London office. And he says, my granddad, Sidney Herbert White fought at the Battle of, Battle of Ypres as part of the Royal Berkshire Regiment and was taken prisoner of war. Berkshire, you half-wit. Ah, Berkshire. I'm very, very sorry. So the Royal Berkshire Regiment and he was taken a prisoner of war. Uh, he says, I remember my dad saying that his father, Sidney, never, never once spoke about the war before he died in 1962. So I just about remember him as a child. In around 1972, my dad and I met another former World War I soldier, Bill Allen, who was a distant uncle of Dad's, when he was close to death in hospital. He spoke of his vivid memories of the conflict, and in the hour or so we sat with him at his bedside in the hospital in Hornchurch, Dad said that Bill had spoken more about the war than he had ever heard from his own father.
1: I, th- I think people... Uh Generally, are very reluctant to talk about their experiences. People are very mm. withdrawn, and probably, um, and of course, times are very different. Mm. Very namby pamby state now, whereas mm. then people just were expected to get on with it. Yes,
0: and Tony Doyle from our Wellington office, he's shared a story which is I particularly like. Um, I have no personal story regarding World War One, but my wife Dee recalls the story of her grandfather who served at. Um, Gallipoli in the infantry when the war ended it was normal to shoot the regiment's horses but her grandfather and many of his friends would not do it so they decided to walk home to the UK through Europe it was early 1920 that they arrived back in England with their beloved horses some 15 months after the war had ended there's loyalty and love for you
1: that's what you call war horses Drew war horses yeah not just war horse Ah. (laughs) great film by the way great (laughs) book
0: And um, uh, another one I'm going to share is from Mark Carey, business development manager of Aston Waite. Great chap. Um, and he says For some reason, my great grandfather joined the army in 1898 under a false name, taking the surname of a neighbor to gain entry. He joined the Royal Engineers as a foreman of works, but by April 1918, he was promoted to quartermaster sergeant. When World War I broke out, he was shipped over to France, arriving in Ypres. On the 27th of August 1915, he spent the next five years there. His first placement was part of the British Expedition Forces, BEF, joining the HQ-10 Corps. In 1916, the BEF had moved from the Picardy region of France, and the year was dominated by the Battle of Somme. Allied forces attempted to break through the German lines along the 25-mile front north and south of the River Somme in northern France. On the first day on the Somme, the BEF suffered 59,000 casualties. He received three medals during the war, the, Victor- the Victory Medal, <laughs> <laughs> uh, acting in the theatre of war, the British Medal campaigning uh, for the campaign abroad, and the 15-star medal for his involvement
1: in the France campaign. Very good, Drew. Uh, I should, um, out of honour to um, to Reginald, I should point out that Reginald was awarded the... Uh, distinguished conduct medal for his bravery um, in standing by the guns despite being gassed uh, which ranks only second to the Victoria Cross Um, Mm -hmm. so we're particularly proud of him Uh, last but not least uh, Laura Evans our national HR manager who I'd like to congratulate for passing all of her exams Mm -hmm. By the very splendid woman she is Um, she she shares a story with us Uh, my great granddad signed up illegally well, that's illegally, by the way. Mm-hmm. When he was fourteen with his twin brother, and they stayed in the army for just under thirty years. Oh wow. He fought all the way through the World War One and indeed the Boer War and served altogether in seven countries.
0: Wow. So
1: um that's quite something. Mm. I guess um to close, I was just thinking about what we haven't talked about today. So so the war obviously um lasted just over four years. And altogether, including civilians, about 20 million people died, which is um, quite staggering, really. And, of course, the world was never the same again. Many people regard that the cream of British society was lost on the battlefield. Mm. Our our, our particularly best young men died. that caused, obviously, a huge imbalance in the female-male population for a long time. Mm. Had a lot of women, um, obviously a lot more women than men in, in England for a long time. Uh, a lot of ladies uh, who stay true to their to their husbands uh, or fiancés. So you, you, a lot of people I met. I remember lots of people I, I met when I was a little boy who were eighty, who had never been married, mm. who had been engaged mm. to someone who died in the war, which That's was very, so very 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 sad. Um, just just in case um, we do get someone listening to this, who knows. Um, so the name of the family in Abadair that um, Reginald married into was called jones and i know that roseanne uh four years after reginald's death married a guy called thomas davies uh so um uh i have a cousin out there or a second cousin um being so uh, reginald's daughter with um roseanne was was called louisa uh so i presume I she was christened louisa scott uh i think it's unlikely she would have taken the name of davies so um I do have some relations over in the Aberdare area, which mm. I'd be very pleased to meet if if, if that was possible. Um, so what more has one to say, Mr. Armstrong, mm. about this terrible war?:
0: Yes, it was a terrible time that cost so many lives, and we we thank the sacrifice that they made for us. I think that's what I would like to say
1: lest we forget, lest we forget. Mm.
0: And I believe we're going to play out this week with another tune of the period. Mm-hmm. This one is another John McCormack tune and it's called Roses of Picardy. He
2: is watching by the poplars with the sea blue eyes She is watching and longing and waiting where the long, wide roadway lies. And the song starts in the silence as the winding of the boughs above. She listens and starts and trembles, is the forest little song of love. Shining in Picardie, in the hush of the silver dew. Roses are flowering in Picardy, but there's never a rose like you. The that will die with summertime. Man and our paths may be far apart. But there's one rose that dies not in Picardy. Till the rose that I keep in my heart. Roses are shining in. Picardy, in the hush of the silver dew. Roses are flowering in Picardy, but there's never a rogue like you. And the roses will die with the summer time. One Part our paths may be far apart, but there's one rose that dies not in Picardy. Tis the rose I keep in mind.